Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Will you say that with me? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. If you'll please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 19. And as you do, I was thinking this past week about famous last words. You know, there's something about somebody's last words that bears special significance and meaning. And sometimes those last words are stirring and inspiring. Sometimes they're kind of tragic and sad. And so I I did some research and found a few uh, supposed, recorded, famous last words. George Washington's last words were, It is well, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. Sir Walter Raleigh said, I have a long journey to take and must bid the company farewell. Elvis Presley's last recorded words were at a press conference. The last thing anybody, as far as you know, ever heard him say was, I hope I haven't bored you. Interesting. Now, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, you may not know this, but they both died on the same day. John Adams, the second president, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, both died on July the 4th, 1826. And when John Adams died, his last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. And Thomas Jefferson's last words were, is it the fourth? Last words. Emily Dickinson, ever the poet, her last words were, the fog is rising. And William Wallace, at least according to uh, the writers and directors of the movie Braveheart, his last word was, freedom. Yes, very good. We know the gospel writers paid special attention to the final week of Jesus' life. If you look at most of the Gospels and you look at how much of the Gospel is about Jesus' life and ministry up to Palm Sunday and after, you'll see that there's a disproportionate amount written about His last week. It it is far more than all the other rest, proportionately speaking. That they were focused on Jesus' final acts, His final teachings, His last conversations with His disciples, and especially with His dying words. As far as we know, John was the only gospel writer to actually be at the cross as an eyewitness to those events. And he gives us two unique perspectives on Jesus' last moments on the cross. Think about it as two different camera angles. First, John gives us sort of a close-up angle, directly into the mind of Christ. He gives us the view from the cross. But then he, he kind of backs off. He gives us a wider Scope, a wider view from the eyewitnesses of those on the ground. So I want us to look at this, but I want us to begin with the second. Let's begin with the, with the wide-angle lens. And let's look at the view from the ground. Read with me in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, 
And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Jesus has bowed his head in death. John was right there to see it. And later on, as John was going to write this down, he reflected on the significance of this moment. He pondered some ironies and some implications. First, John reflected on how ironic it was that the Jewish leaders were worried about Sabbath decorum while the Lord of the Sabbath died at their hands on a Roman execution cross. Jesus often criticized the Pharisees and the Sadducees of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy like paying so much attention to to the minute details of the law, like not polluting the ground with blood and death on the Sabbath day. They were concerned about that kind of minutia while neglecting the heart of the law, like not putting God's Messiah on a mock trial and colluding with Rome to have Him executed. They were afraid of being cursed by having a corpse hanging on a tree overnight while Jesus was taking the curse upon Himself to save us from death. They were so eager to get ready for Passover, all the while failing to realize that God had already provided His Passover lamb to shed His blood for their sins. The crucifixion was a morbid, grotesque scene. The soldiers, as John describes, breaking men's legs to hasten death because on the cross with your arms stretched out the way that you were, the weight of your body pulling you down, they couldn't breathe. And they would have to push up with their legs to take a breath. And so by breaking their legs, the Roman soldiers ensured that these men would basically die by suffocation. But Jesus was already gone. Look back at verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus was already dead. He gave up His Spirit. That's significant. Notice it says that Jesus gave up His Spirit. No one took it from Him, did they? No one took Jesus' life from Him. He willingly gave it up. He was in control right up till that moment. It's important to remember. So instead of breaking Jesus' legs, the soldiers pierced Jesus' side, releasing the blood and the fluids that had filled Jesus' chest and abdomen. You know, you can imagine the internal bleeding that was probably going on and the buildup of fluid in his body from the abuse that he had taken all day that day. And John mentions these things not to horrify us, but as a testimony. As a testimony that Jesus was indeed dead. I mean, don't you think these Roman soldiers had seen enough death? oftentimes at their own hands to know, to look and see and know whether a man was dead or not. And when they looked at Jesus, they saw no signs of life. He was not struggling to breathe. And this answers the question that some people raise about the resurrection. People want to argue that, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross, He just fainted. And so when they put Him in that nice, cool tomb, it revived Him and He woke up. I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. 
Jesus was unquestionably dead. There, there was no reason for them to break his legs. There was no reason to break his legs. And uh, so if you were asleep, you're awake now, right? And now his lungs, his heart have been pierced. And he has bled out on the ground. Jesus died on that cross. And John reflects on two instances of foreshadowing in the Old Testament about this. The first, he says, in verse 36, is that not one of his, bro- one of his bones will be broken. Now, this comes from the original Passover, from the exodus out of Egypt. And if you remember, God sent ten plagues against Egypt. In that tenth and final plague, He was going to send an angel of death to pass over Egypt and to take every firstborn son. And God gave very specific instructions through Moses to the people of Israel about that first Passover night. And He told them to eat only unleavened bread. He told them to kill a one-year-old spotless male lamb and to roast and to eat it in the house and to sprinkle its blood on the door frames of the house. And if they would do this, then the death angel would see the blood and would pass over their house and spare them. In Exodus 12, 46, we see this particular instruction. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. But on this first Good Friday, while the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in Jerusalem, the ultimate and final Passover lamb was being slain outside the city. And I can imagine that as John witnessed this and thought about the the, the supper they had just had the night before, celebrating the Passover Seder meal together, Jesus taking the very bread of Passover and breaking it and saying, this is my body which is given for you, and taking that cup of redemption and saying, this is the New Testament in my blood which is poured out for you. And as John remembered that and watched Jesus die on the cross, I can imagine that he recalled the words of John the Baptist. And John 1.29, who said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Passover, this Passover, it surpasses the first Passover. This is the moment of redemption, the plan of salvation that all of history has been working toward. The great exodus from Egypt, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, all of it was just pointing us to this moment. This. It was Jesus who was the perfect sinless sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of a holy God against sin and provides for forgiveness for all of humanity. And so from John the Baptist's declaration in John chapter 1 to Jesus' own words about Himself throughout this Gospel to this moment on the cross, John charted this amazing revelation that Jesus was the Passover Lamb come to die so that death would pass over everyone who finds themselves underneath His blood. But let's go to the end of John's life now. When God revealed to John how all of this was going to end. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, 
we read this amazing heavenly choir song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to, be, to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Just think, John saw it all from the beginning of Jesus' ministry through His death, resurrection and ascension and even to the end when Christ returns in triumphant victory. John is our expert witness that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John tells us at the end of his gospel why he wrote all this down. He said it's so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Not a bone was broken because He is the fulfillment of that Passover Lamb for each and every one of us. But secondly, he observed and, and, and looked at this foreshadowing from the Old Testament. In verse 37, they will look on the one they have pierced. This reminded John of Zechariah's prophecy. In Zechariah 12.10, the Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And then in 13.1, he says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. God spoke through the prophet Zechariah in stirring language to explain to his people how their sins stabbed at his heart. Our sins can wound God. He does indeed feel the effects of our wickedness. But God doesn't turn His back on us. No, instead, He pours upon us a spirit of grace and prayer so that His people will realize the gravity of their sin and so that their hearts will break for what they have done. God promises here forgiveness. That He will cleanse us from our sin and our impurity, if we look upon the one we have pierced and we grieve and we mourn in our hearts for what we have done and we repent, we turn away from sin. And as John considered what Jesus endured on Calvary for us, he thought of this passage in Zechariah. For in Jesus, we literally can look upon the one that we have pierced. And by the grace of God and the conviction of His Holy Spirit, when we survey the wondrous cross, it will pour contempt on all our pride. Such amazing divine love surely demands our soul, our life, our all. When we look upon and survey the one that we have pierced. But again, John takes us forward from this moment. In Revelation 1-7, to Christ's return. And John, once again, draws from the words of Zechariah. Look, He is coming with the clouds. 
And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. Now let me ask you this question. Who pierced, who nailed Jesus to the cross? Can we just blame the Jews and the Romans? No. It was you and it was me. Our sins nailed Jesus to the cross. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we are healed. It was for your sins and my sins that Jesus died. And John and Zechariah call us to look on Jesus and consider what He did for us on the cross and grieve. Weep and mourn in repentance of our sins and then believe on Him and trust in Him and be saved. This is just the view from the ground. This is what John witnessed and saw. This is what the Spirit brought to John's mind as he surveyed the wondrous cross. But let's take the close-up view now. Let's zoom in and go into the mind of Christ on the cross and discover not just what happened, but why. What does all this mean for us today? Look with me back in John 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed... And so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when He had finished, when He had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. In this close-up, John tells us two things Jesus said, but then He makes two observations on what Jesus meant by what He said. And the first thing Jesus says here is, I am thirsty. Again, consider the irony. Consider the irony when you you look back over John's Gospel. You look at, at, at what he wrote about Jesus throughout that Gospel. To the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus said of Himself, whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. At the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus declared, let anyone who is thirsty... Come to me and drink. And in Revelation 21, 6, John will write these future words of Christ. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Look at that. And yet, Jesus, the source of living water, the fountain of life who quenches all thirsts, here at the end, He is thirsty. Of course Jesus was thirsty. Consider what Jesus endured that day. I don't think we can ever really imagine what Jesus endured that day. He spent the night praying so intensely that He was sweating drops of blood. He was arrested in the middle of the night and dragged before the Sanhedrin and put on a mock trial, standing on His feet, being berated, being mocked, being beaten and abused by the the temple guards and then the Roman soldiers. He was hauled before Pilate, carted back to King Herod, taken back to Pilate. They put a crown of thorns onto his head. They beat him with a stick. 
And then they took him out into a courtyard. They strapped him to a stone column and they beat him with a whip that had nine strands filled with rock and bone and glass. And then they made him carry the beam of his own cross through the streets. And they nailed his hands and his feet to this cross and they raised him up and he hung there baking underneath the hot Mideastern sun. Of course, Jesus was thirsty. But Jesus meant something far more significant than just his physical, literal need for water. Consider these verbs right here in these verses. Three key verbs. Completed. Fulfilled. And finished. Now, in English, those are three different words. They kind of mean the same thing. Those are three different words in English, but they are the same word in the Greek. Teleo is the Greek word here. And that word means accomplished, completed, achieved, attained perfection. The idea is that everything has been done to the letter. It is finished. There's nothing left to do. It's complete. It's perfect. It even means victory. Remember William Wallace and Braveheart, at least according to Hollywood, his last word was freedom. And he said that word because he was convinced that his life, that he gave his life for a good cause. He was convinced that he had accomplished what he set out to do. And whether that word is accurate or not, it gives us an insight into William Wallace's mind at the moment of his death. Well, John wants us to understand Jesus' frame of mind on the cross. And it wasn't one of defeat. It wasn't woe is me. He had a mentality of achievement, accomplishment. Remember, no one could take Jesus' life from him. He gave up his spirit. He laid down his life willingly. His death was not a defeat. It was an accomplishment. John goes on to reflect on this. And he gives us two reasons why Jesus said, I am thirsty. He said this for a reason. First, he says, because all was now completed. All was now completed. Have you ever thought about Jesus' life as an epic quest to save the world? Kind of like the Lord of the Rings, you know? If you've seen the Lord of the Rings, you remember Frodo, the little hobbit, you know, unlikely character. And he has the ring of power, and he has to get that ring of power to Mordor and throw it into the fires of Mount Doom to save the world from Sauron and his evil powers. And it takes him three movies to do this. Three long movies to do this. Why? Because Sauron and his evil minions were trying to stop him. And he had roadblock and hurdle and pitfall after another. Well, guess what? Jesus' life is no fantasy fiction. His was a real quest with real life and death consequences. All of humanity literally hanging in the balance. And yes, Satan and his minions tried time and again to stop Jesus from getting to that cross. When Jesus was a baby... King Herod sought to find him and kill him. The story could have ended right there. When Jesus began his ministry, Satan tempted him three times in the wilderness, trying to deter him from the path the Father had laid out for him, trying to get him to find an easier, more comfortable way to accomplish God's will. When Jesus revealed to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem and die, Peter said, no, you're not. We're not going to let that happen. And he had to say, get behind me, Satan. Jesus' own mother and brothers showed up and tried to dissuade him from this crazy path that he was on, fearing for his life. 
The night Jesus was betrayed, He prayed in that garden and He struggled within Himself. He didn't want to drink from the cup of human sin and suffering. He didn't want to drink the cup of God's wrath, the cup the Father had given Him to drink. But He said, not my will, but Thine be done. And I can imagine that throughout that night when Jesus was arrested and tried and flogged and beaten and mocked, how many times did He think to Himself, any moment I could call down a legion of angels to lay you all out and rescue myself. But He didn't do it. And even as He hung on that cross, Satan was taunting and tempting Him as the thief on one side said, Save us! Save yourself and save us. And the people mocking him on the ground said, He could save others. Can he not save himself? But Jesus willingly hung on that cross for you and for me. Jesus was born to die. It was his mission all along. The whole redemptive plan of God from eternity past was now coming to completion. This was his life's purpose. This was the Father's will. And here, as Jesus says, I am thirsty. He has reached the point of no return. Nothing could now stop the moment that he would give up his spirit and willingly die for the sins of the world. Don't you see, after all the obstacles and all the temptations and all the near misses, this was a moment of accomplishment, completion, achievement. He had done He hung on that cross for you and for me because it was completed. But secondly, John tells us it was so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And y'all thought about Jesus through all those years, through all those opportunities that He had to say no, all those opportunities He had to call down those angels, all those opportunities He had to just reveal Himself in all of His glory to everybody at that moment. What guided him through all of that? What helped him to overcome all of those obstacles and pitfalls and diverging paths? It was the Word of God. It was Scripture. And throughout Jesus' life, he taught the Scripture, he quoted the Scripture, he fulfilled the Scripture. And here at the end, the Scriptures inhabit his mind. On Palm Sunday, as Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly, we see that Zechariah 9.9 was on Jesus' mind which said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And now on the cross, it is Psalm 22 that weighs heavy on Jesus' mind. This is an amazingly prophetic psalm. It was written hundreds of years before the Roman Empire even came into existence, much less their very unique and cruel method of crucifixion. But yet this psalm perfectly depicts Roman execution. And in Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, it says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus was thirsty. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus cries out in anguish, quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And John makes reference to this psalm when he talks about how the soldiers divided up his garments and cast lots for them. But one author points out that when Jesus said he was thirsty, he was not just ticking off one more little box on a list of Bible predictions. No, Jesus saw a profound resonance with what was happening to him at that moment. Because Psalm 22 does far more than just describe the gruesome way the Messiah would suffer and die. It lays out the reason and the hope behind His death. Jesus saw His suffering and death, yes, as fulfilling the first half of Psalm 22, but also fulfilling the last half of Psalm 22. 
Because beginning in verse 22, the psalm shifts from the suffering and the shame to praising God for salvation. The psalmist expects God to vindicate him and deliver him. But also he expects that God's salvation will be extended to the poor and the rich to the weak and the strong to the generations that have come before and the generations yet to be born. Look in Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before Him for dominion belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. Both halves of this psalm express the depths of Christ's sufferings, but also the height of His faith and hope. And that brings us back around to Jesus' final words on the cross. It is finished. It is finished! Jesus had Psalm 22 in His mind, even with His last conscious thoughts on the cross, because Psalm 22 ends by saying they will proclaim His righteousness, declaring to a people yet born, what? He has done it. He has done it. It is finished. Jesus is declaring victory and celebrating with His dying breath. All things have been completed. Scripture has been fulfilled. God's redemptive work is accomplished. He has done it. What has Jesus done? What did He accomplish? Well, our New Testament reading this morning tells us that. Let's look at that real quick before I close. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, we are dead in our sins. Dead. Cut off from fellowship with God, with the giver of life. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are made alive. When somebody is saved, they go from being dead to being alive. Our sins are an act of rebellion against the Holy God. They are treason against our good Father. God is holy and just, therefore sin must be punished. But Jesus took that punishment for us on the cross. He paid our debt. And now our sins can be forgiven. The Old Testament law is the written code that stands against us. A constant reminder that we are sinful and rebellious. The Ten Commandments we've been looking at on the past several Sundays, none of us can keep it, right? But Jesus did. He is perfect. And in Christ, we are declared innocent. We are acquitted from breaking God's law. He took the charge against us and He nailed them to the cross. He became sin. He bore our guilt and shame so we wouldn't have to. And this last verse is the most amazing. Jesus destroyed death and sin and all the worldly powers of evil, and all the demonic forces that crush and invade and enslave and destroy. You know, I love that Easter this year is on April 1st, on April Fool's Day. 
Because when Jesus died on that cross, the Jewish religious leaders, the Roman authorities in Jerusalem thought, that's it, we're rid of this guy, it's done, it's over. Satan and his demons thought, that's it, we've won, God is dead, he's defeated. But guess what happened three days later? No! Jesus came rising from the dead to defeat sin, hell, death, and the grave. How do you, how do you, what do you do with an enemy that once you publicly humiliate and execute him, he doesn't stay dead? They thought they were victorious, but Jesus triumphed over them by the cross. He took an instrument of shame and turned it into a message of love. All this was accomplished through the cross and the empty tomb. Everything. Everything necessary for your salvation and mine. He's done it. He has done it. It is finished. Only one thing remains. We must respond. As the instrumentalists come up, I just want you to hear this very carefully. When Jesus died on that cross, God purchased the most wonderful gift in the world for you, the gift of eternal life. But like any gift, we must receive it, right? How do you receive this gift, this priceless gift that Jesus purchased? How do you receive it? Three things I want you to know. You must first acknowledge that you're a sinner. Confess your guilt. Yes, you are a rebellious son or daughter of God. You have, have rebelled against Him. You are a sinner. Own that. Acknowledge it, that you have broken God's law. You have to acknowledge your sin. But secondly, you have to believe that Jesus is the perfect, sinless Son of God. That He is that sacrifice that fulfilled Scripture. That satisfied the wrath of God. That He did take your sin and your shame upon Himself. And He did for you what you can never do for yourself. Believe that. But then finally, you have to call on Him. You have to trust in Him. You have to turn away from the sin and turn away from self-sufficiency and thinking that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Turn away from all of that and look upon the one you have pierced and trust in Him and ask Him to forgive you and to save you and to give you life. Not just life eternal, but life abundant. Have you done that? Have you acknowledged your sin? Have you believed in Jesus Christ and called out to Him to be your Lord and Savior? If you have not, then as we stand and sing, I invite you to come today and experience the victory that Jesus has truly purchased for you. Maybe this morning you're here and you just have lost the wonder of this, this story, this gospel. This, this morning you're just thinking, you know, I've, I've kind of grown a little numb to this. I've, I, I've just... It's become so familiar that I've lost the wonder and you just want to come and bow at this altar and cry out to God in love and thanksgiving for what He's done for you and rededicate your life to Him. Maybe this morning God has called you to unite with this church family as we worship this Savior who died and rose again. Whatever God is speaking to you, let's stand and sing and obey.